0: father God we just come before you so thankful really thankful I know our lives can get so busy and hectic and chaotic our minds can be filled with so many thoughts that overtake the reality of who you are our schedules become so busy Lord and our problems seem so insurmountable and Lord we just don't take the time that we should and Lord this morning we're going to hear a message about a man that was prepared a man that was filled with the spirit that was chosen by his peers to be someone that would serve, to be as an example Father someone that is sold out completely to you Lord as Pastor Chris speaks today I pray God that just like the men that were spoken to by Stephen where we would hear the word and Father that we would be pricked to our hearts, our souls consciously to choose Lord that we would recognize what needs to change in our lives so that we can be all that you've called us to be and fulfill the purpose that you've called us to fulfill. We love you Lord. Thank you God for Jesus. Thank you Jesus for loving us, for giving your life for us for making a way for us so that we could have a relationship with our Father in Heaven. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.
1: Amen. 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 Y'all may be seated. Welcome to Firewheel. My name is Chris Carroll. If we have not met, I'm the lead pastor here at Firewheel Bible Fellowship. And uh, I'm grateful that you're here because today we're going to talk about who? Jesus. Trick question, right? Uh, I'm going to ask that you open your Bibles. Everybody say, Word. We're going to be in Acts chapter 6, Acts chapter 6, turn there uh, or scroll there on your phone, tablet, or electronic device, Acts chapter 6, verses uh, 8 through chapter 7, and uh, find your place and we will look at the text here in just a moment. There is an atmosphere and a, a sense of deep and quiet respect that should fill the hearts, of those who step onto places or into places of great sacrifice. I had uh, such an experience two summers back when I stepped onto the hallowed grounds of Arlington National Cemetery in Washington DC. I'm not sure if you've ever been there but stone markers Marking the final resting place of soldiers from all branches of the military, uh, astronauts, nurses, war correspondents, chaplains, and and presidents, that just kind of names a few of those who are buried there, the long-since quieted servants of our country. Now, there's one grave, though, uh, while at Arlington Cemetery that does seem to rise above them all. Uh, It is a place that is set apart, guarded night and day by a soldier who with expert precision stands at attention rifle carefully perched, rain, hail, sleet, and snow, and even through hurricane, guarding the tomb of the unknown soldier. Uh, It is a tomb where a soldier from World War II, or World War I, I'm sorry, resides, but within that same hallowed ground, there is also an unknown soldier from World War II, Korea and Vietnam. If you've not been there, it's hard to describe. Uh, There's one ceremony uh, that is... That is, uh, I how do I describe the ceremony? It's the 3rd Infantry, called the Old Guard. Is it? It's called the Changing of the Guards. It's a very sobering experience to see them change guards. It is a place where there's no talking. Okay? It's not a place where you crack jokes or, or disturb uh, the, the, the solemn nature of the ceremony. In fact, throughout uh, the years, people have tried to disrespect that tomb. And have tried to disrespect that ceremony of the changing of the guards, quickly discovering you don't throw trash, you don't mock, and you certainly don't disrespect not the third infantry, not our country, not there, not ever. Well, this morning, we are venturing into an equally uh, somber and equally vigilantly guarded place of hallowed ground here in the scripture of our study of the text, to look at a tomb that rises above all the others. Okay? It's not of an unknown soldier. No, this is of a person we know very, very well. In fact, this place of burial rise, rises above the burial places of all those countless throughout history who have laid their life down for Christ. This morning, we are going to honor one fallen soldier by the name of Stephen, Stephen. His tomb remains vigilantly guarded by the text of Scripture and by those who carefully study and teach such text. We are tasked with protecting the dignity of such a place. I'm going to ask that we not disrespect this tomb this morning. I'm going to ask that we not litter it, this this grave with the trash of a cluttered mind, or with the the mocking of silent apathy, or with the disrespect of ever-common distraction of our 21st century life. Not here. Not the 6th and 7th chapter of the book of Acts, not now and not ever. Last week we met Stephen, a man who was described as being full of the Spirit, full of wisdom and full of faith, picked by his peers, set apart for a very important task. That is for the important ministry of food distribution among the Hellenist widows. But he was not just a table servant. In fact, we come to see very quickly that he was a bold proclaimer, not only in word but in power of the gospel of Jesus Jesus had so impacted his life, he then spent his life investing and in proclaiming that gospel. Verse 8 of chapter 6 of the book of Acts, it says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. The greatest of all is the proclaiming of the gospel and people passing from death to life. But he is one of two people outside of the apostles and the book of Acts, who is attributed with miraculous power of the Holy Spirit and his boldness very quickly brought him into conflict with a group of leaders from a local Hellenist synagogue. Now keep in mind, Stephen, as we saw last week, was a Greek-Jewish believer. He probably came out of the same group of Hellenist synagogues that are going to bring conflict against Stephen. They are now going to battle their own. Okay, so Stephen has walked out of the synagogue into the church in worship of Christ, and now this synagogue is going to have conflict with Stephen, as we see very quickly, the progression of aggression that I've been talking about in the book of Acts. I quote here from the New Illustrated Bible Commentary. It says this, The resistance to the gospel had gone from discussion to debate, and then from debate to slander, then from slander to violence, as often is the case. Verse 9, It says, Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now, I could go into the history of these particular synagogues. I'm not going to. Just keep in mind that these are Hellenist synagogues beginning to have a dispute with one of their own who is now a Christ follower. It says in verse 10, But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Okay, so they tried to bring dispute, they tried to find a flaw in the teaching of Stephen, but just like those who tried to find a flaw in the teaching of Christ, they often found themselves looking foolish and then downright frustrated. I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of arguing with, arguing with somebody who is clearly in the wrong, like no matter how hard, they try to defend their case, they know they're wrong, and then they finally go, well, you're stupid, and then walk away, well... These folks were looking foolish and their, their wisdom was flawed and, and they were frustrated, but instead of saying, hey, you're stupid, they turned to the unconventional methods of addressing the conflict, the same unconventional methods that they did with Christ. It is now time to put to death the messenger. Verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we've heard him speak blasphemy, blasphemous words against Moses and God. And so they begin to stir up a mob saying, hey, this guy talks trash against Moses and against, against God himself. And I'll tell you, in this particular culture, there was, there was no greater accusation than to levy at somebody than the accusation of blasphemy. And I'll add, too, it was one of those accusations that didn't really need to be defended all that great. There wasn't a necessity of all that much supporting documentation. They could just call somebody a blasphemer and very quickly the culture returned against them. In verse 12, it says, and they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and they seized him, that is forcibly seized him, and brought him before the council. So they arrested Stephen, dragged him before the council, the high Jewish council, the same council that Peter and John had previously been dragged before, and now it's time for them to be presented, or for Stephen himself to be presented before the high Jewish council. And So just imagine 71 of the most elite religious leaders, plus the leaders from the, the Jewish synagogue of the Hellenists, I mean, we're talking a couple of hundred people piled into this courtroom and there's Stephen. And so the camera like pans on all those people that are accusing Stephen. Then all of a sudden the camera pans to focus in on Stephen in verse 15. And then all of a sudden we see his face radiating. Look at verse 15. It says, and gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of what? An angel. They are levying all kinds of accusations. He speaks blasphemy against the temple. He speaks blasphemy against the the customs and the interpretations of Israel. And all they could see was the face of an angel. It reminds me of, of Moses who spent some time with God on Mount Sinai as he went up to receive the law and he came back down. His face radiated the Shekinah glory of God. Same with Stephen. They are accusing him of of blaspheming Moses but just like Moses his face radiating the Shekinah glory of God and they set up verse false witnesses verse 13 and they said this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law for we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs delivered to Moses and Jesus had multiple times himself said the temple was going to be turned torn down and through the preaching of, of Jesus and the apostles and Stephen, you better believe the customs and the traditions and the teaching of the, of the Israelites, it was being challenged. you know why? Because they were wrong. You will find no more uh, antagonistic response than from those who are having their deeply held convictions, traditions, and customs challenged. This group of elite were in the wrong and they were being challenged, and so they accused them of blasphemy. So verse 7 The camera then pans, or chapter 7, I'm sorry, verse 1, camera then pans to the high priest from the radiating face of Stephen to the enraged face of the high priest who quiets the council and has one single question for Stephen. What say you? The high priest said to him, Are these things so? Do you speak against the temple? Do you teach against our customs? Do you teach against our interpretation? Do you blaspheme Moses and God by preaching Jesus? Stephen is then afforded the opportunity to speak to the entire council and all of the religious that are gathered which leads Stephen to preach one of the longest sermons and longest single discourses that you'll find anywhere in the book of Acts. In fact, many readers have encountered this particular sermon and just assume that it's kind of like a long overview of the Old Testament. In fact, that was my common interpretation. I would read it and I would see Stephen begin to preach and I would quickly read through his sermon thinking, oh, it's just a retelling of, of Israel's history. And at times I thought, what a weird place for it. It's such a long sermon. And there are times where I'm trying to plow through a text, and I'm like, dang, the guy talks an awful lot. It's like what you all think sometimes on Sundays. Hey, this guy talks a lot. But. So the guy's given the opportunity to preach. And what I've come to discover, it's not just a general retelling of history. No, it is actually one of the most brilliant, brilliantly crafted sermons and arguments For the redemptive nature of God and the rebellious and rejecting nature of Israel. And in fact, it is one of the greatest examples of early apologetics. We get a glimpse of how they defended the gospel and how they defended the faith in and through the scriptures. You're going to quickly see that Stephen's message is first and foremost biblical. He is a biblical and theological stud. And for the sake of time and of clarity, what I'm going to do is kind of summarize his major points of the discourse, and this may surprise you. The majority of his sermon comes out of what book of the Bible? Genesis. Who said that? Stephen. The majority of Stephen's sermon is pulled out of the book of Genesis. In fact, in verse 2, Stephen addresses the council. He says, brothers and fathers, he speaks to them respectively, respectfully and says hear me he begins with the story of Abraham Isaac and Jacob all the way back to Genesis chapter 11 and 12 and he says this the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia where God told him to leave his family his country and his gods and to walk by faith God had promised Abraham by covenant land descendants and blessing Abraham became the father of Isaac. Isaac became the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of the 12 patriarchs. The 12 patriarchs who, in jealousy, sold their younger brother into slavery named Joseph. You all remember the dude with the coat of many colors? He was walking around, and his brothers became jealous of him, so they threw him in a pit, took the coat, dipped it in blood. I don't know, Dad. I think he got torn by a wild animal. They sold him for a couple of handfuls of silver off into Egypt. They sold... They rejected the one who was going to become their redeemer and savior. What does that sound like? See how he's arguing? Brilliant. So they sold Joseph into slavery. God was with Joseph through his entire time in Egypt. And in the passing of time, Joseph delivered his entire family from the famine of death. 400 years passed. And over that 400 years, as true to biblical prophecy, Israel remained in the land. They grew mightily in number. But a king rose up over the Israelites who did not remember Joseph and who had no kindness in his heart towards the Israelites, in fact, had decreed that all children of Israel's descent would be brutally killed. But God promised there would be a deliverer and a savior. Can anyone in here tell me who that deliverer and savior was supposed to be? good old Mo. Moses, that's right. And this beautiful handsome boy was born. He was thrown into the river of death. He was pulled out of death and into adoption by Pharaoh's daughter where he was raised in the Egyptian culture. And at 40 years old, he visited his people and seeing an Egyptian beat an Israelite, he killed the Egyptian thinking, Moses thought, that the people of Israel would understand that he was sent to be their Savior. Chapter 7 of Acts, verse 25. The text reads this way. There it is. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand. Did they understand that? Nope. They didn't get it. In fact, the next day, Moses saw two Israelites fighting, and he said, Hey, why are you two fighting? And the Israelites turned to Moses and said, Who made you a judge over us? Are you going to kill us the way you killed the Egyptian soldier? Immediately, Moses, realizing that his crime had been discovered, went into hiding in Midian, had two children, and shepherded sheep for 40 years. Until God did what? How did God appear to Moses? A burning bush. You all know the story. In the middle of the wilderness, Moses is walking along. Hey, that's strange. That's strange. There's a fire in the bush, but the bush is not consumed. So he walks up and God speaks to him. I want you to look at chapter 7, verse 32. God spoke to Moses. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac. Those guys seem important, don't they? And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Why was it holy, class? Because God was there. You want to know what makes something holy? God's presence makes it holy. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I have heard their groaning, and I have come down to deliver them. There is nothing more encouraging than knowing that God sees our affliction, God hears our groaning, and he has come down to rescue us. How many of you are encouraged by that? What does that sound like to you, by the way? God sees our affliction, God hears our groaning, and he has come down to rescue us. Can you all think of anyone who has done that in history for us? Jesus, that's right. You see his argument? He goes on to say, I've surely seen the affliction of my people and have heard their groaning. I've come down to deliver them. Now I will send you to Egypt. How do you think the Israelites receive now this messenger of God? Open arms? Big celebration? A banner saying, yay Moses! No, in fact verse 35 this moses whom they what rejected common theme rejection and rebellion rejection and rebellion god continually trying to redeem do you ever read through the old testament and you're like "When are these guys gonna get it and then sometimes i'm like looking at my own life and i'm like "When am i gonna get it they rejected saying who made you ruler and judge who made him ruler and judge god okay this man god sent both as ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush this man did he let him out listen to this performing wonders and signs in egypt at the red sea they were trembling the egyptian army was about to swallow them god threw moses part of the red sea they walked through like on dry ground that's odd the ocean swallowed the egyptians who pursued them god delivered he struck the rock water came out Bread fell from heaven, okay? I mean, this is incredible stuff. And you would imagine through all of this, the people of Israel would be like, Moses, you're like this great prophet. We're so grateful for you. And we know God's working powerfully through you. In fact, Moses even foretold of an even greater prophet. Verse 37, Stephen's still preaching. He says, this Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. What prophet is he speaking of? Jesus, the prophet. It sounds to me like Stephen pretty much respects Moses. You all agree with that? Uh huh. Moses received the word of God at Mount Sinai, and while Moses was receiving the word, the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, what were the children of Israel doing at that time? Making a calf. Making a calf. Look at verse thirty-nine. Our fathers refused to obey him, that is Moses, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. He was on the mountain for like a week. And the people were like, I don't know what happened to that guy. We need another leader. And so Aaron's like, hey, give me your gold. And he crafts this calf. And I love this story because Moses comes down and there's the calf. And Aaron's like, oh, I don't know what happened. The gold fell in, into the fire and this calf fell out. And so we worshipped it. It just made sense. It's kind of like when you're, you know, your little ones get caught doing something. And they're like, I, I don't know how that handprint got on the wall in permanent marker. That's odd. It is weird. It still fits my hand. huh? I don't know how that happened. And rebellion and rejection, they made a calf in those days and offered sacrifices to the idol. Oh, thank you calf for delivering us. Uh, and we're rejoicing in the works of their hands. In fact, the text says they rose up to play. Wow, it sounds like a great history for Israel, doesn't it? This retelling of this story, it, it captures best the rejection of the God who'd redeemed them and saved them from Egypt and that same spirit of rebellion and rejection worked in and through Israel throughout their entire history. They rejected their God. They rejected God's messengers. They rejected God's prophets. They rejected and practice and in their hearts the law of God. They had the tabernacle. They had the temple. They had the law. But the two constant themes throughout all of Israel's history, what were those two constant themes? Rebellion and rejection. All the while, God continually seeking to redeem. And you know what? As easy it is to become judgmental of their history and be like, oh, wow, those guys really were knuckleheads. They totally didn't get it. What are the two themes that weave its way through all of human history? Rebellion and rejection. All the while, God's seeking to redeem. Why? Why would God continually seek to redeem not only his people but humanity that are marked by rebellion and rejection? Why would God do that? (laughs) <laughs> oh how he loves us so oh how he loves us we sing it what kind of god would do that a loving god but also a righteous god a holy god israel multiple times throughout their history not only did they see re- re- redemption but they also saw rejection god multiple times would send his people into judgment and so at this moment, Stephen is preaching. He's refuting every argument against Jesus and showing this religious elite their utter hypocrisy. They clung to the temple, yet in process they turned from God. And so Stephen points his finger at the high priest. This, this Jewish, uh, uh, Greek-Jewish scholar, I mean, there's I no other way to describe him, points his finger at the highest religious figure in the land of Israel and says, you're just like your fathers. And then he turns to the rest of the guys. He says, you're all like your fathers, rebellious and rejecting. In fact, in verse 51, he says, you stiff-necked people. He calls them a bunch of donkeys. Yeehaw! Obstinate animals, he calls them. Uncircumcised in heart and pure in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Verse 52, he asks a very poignant question. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? The list is very short of all the prophets who weren't treated to a prophet's death. The prophets were not well received in the land of Israel. In fact, it was a very dangerous job description to be called a prophet. I always laugh when I hear people tell me today that they're a prophet sent from God. I'm like, I really don't want to stand next to you because I know how prophets are treated. They're typically treated to death. Why? Because people don't want to hear the truth. People want to stop up their ears. They want to reject and they want to rebel because that theme that is coursing through our veins, rebellion and rejection courses through our veins like blood. Which of your fathers, uh, which of the prophets did the fathers not persecute? They killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. All of the prophets that were put to death were the same prophets that foretold that there would be the Messiah, the righteous one. And those prophets not only foretold the coming of the righteous one, but also the denial and rejection of the righteous one. Stephen points his finger at the religious elite gathered and says, you all are murderers. He says, you have now betrayed and you have murdered the righteous one. You murdered your Messiah could have heard a pin drop you who received the law as delivered by angels you didn't keep it he says you rebels you rejectors, you betrayed and murdered your messiah you were guilty you were just like your fathers could you imagine spending your whole entire life trying to distance yourself from the failing of your own father or fathers to then discover you're just like him It was at that moment, the words of Stephen cut them like a knife right to the heart, conviction searing their conscience, their fists now sealing the fate of Stephen. Verse 54, now when they heard these things, they were enraged. From rebellion to rejection to now rage, and they ground their teeth at them. You guys want to know what that's like? That person cuts you off on the highway and you go, oh, God bless you. Your teeth start grinding together, but it's even worse. This is the point where blind rage takes over. There's no more thought. There's no more consideration. The only thing that will satisfy this blind rage is blood. And in these moments, as this angry mob is rushing at him, unrighteously by the way they had no right to lawfully put Stephen to death but this mob is rushing at him cursing and, and screams are filling the air but Stephen doesn't see it it's like his eyes rise above the mob and they, he, they rise above the accusation and all of a sudden in the midst of it because I'll tell you what I would be doing at this moment I wouldn't be looking up I'd be like but he looks up and you know who he sees But he, full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He's like, do you guys see it? None of them looked up. I see him. And what I love about Jesus, he's he's pictured standing. Jesus, when he ascended into heaven, was exalted to the right hand of God. He took his seat next to the Father. But at this moment, Jesus rises to his feet. He's cheering on his champion. He's saying, Stephen, I'm with you, and you will be with me in just a moment. And Stephen declares, I see him. Do you see him? I'm with you. Don't quit. You will be with me in a moment in glory. Verse 57, but they cried out with a loud voice and stopped up their ears. They didn't want to see Jesus. They didn't want to hear any more about Jesus. At this point in time, all they wanted was the blood to spill. Verse 58, they cast him out of the city and stoned him. You will notice all the gory details have been omitted. Because in a first century audience, they would have known exactly what that meant. Just as much as when Jesus was crucified, it says simply, and they crucified him there. They dragged him out of the city, threw him down, dropped heavy stones on him, and they each grabbed rocks and began to pelt him with stones. Can't think of a more brutal way to die. And as they were stoning him, in the midst of being hit in the face and in the back and in the sides with rocks and stones, listen to this, he cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. I'm coming, Lord! I'm coming! And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. He's just like his, his father, you know? He's just like Jesus. He's like, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And when he said this, he fell asleep. What a beautiful note. He fell asleep. As if to say, oh, he's just taking a nap. He'll wake up in Jesus' presence. His blood freely flows now. His breathing has stopped. And so for a moment here at verse 60, let's just stop for a moment of silence at the tomb of the soldier by the name of Stephen. Lord, before we go any farther, I pray that the full weight this picture is felt a man who is willing to be trained to be used and to even give his life for you we are witnesses may that same type of spirit so fill us Lord Stephen is now dead. The first to give his life for the gospel, he will certainly not be the last. Every one of those people who had just participated, not only are rejectors of Messiah, they are now all murderers. In fact, all of the coats have been taken off and laid at the feet. Verse 58, the witnesses laid their garments down at the feet of a young man named Saul. We're going to be introduced more formally to Solus Paulus next week. But the question I have to ask is, what do you do, what do you say after such a passage? And how do you apply this to your life? A few applications come to mind. I mean, the first one that seems very clear is this this linear movement of rebellion, rejection, and rage. They seem to go hand in hand, don't they? That kind of progression of, of aggression starts at... Rebellion and rejection, and then rage. And I think about our culture, and, and we are in a very rebellious culture, rejecting. It's it's not even it's not even to the point where it's like okay, it's just endorsed. Rebellion and rejection against God and His Word, His will, His ways. Rage against things that are truth. Antagonistic towards things that are that are godly and right. I. I think today our, our culture has no desire it doesn't want to hear about sin, doesn't want to hear about the consequences of sin, does not want to hear about the Savior, and I can't think of a generation that is more desperate for hope than any other generation. I mean, I'm not just talking about hurricanes, I'm not just talking earthquakes, I'm not just talking cancer, I'm just talking about the, the, the sense of hopelessness that literally courses through our veins as Americans. We are all hopeless people. And every other idol we seek out, every other idol we craft, we throw our gold into a fire and hope that something comes out. We bow down to it. We worship it. It cannot hear and it cannot save. The golden calf of the American dream. Rebellion rejection and rage I'd imagine that these words that I'm speaking are eliciting in some of our hearts that same type of response maybe you feel rebellious against it maybe you as students maybe you're sitting here and going well this doesn't really apply to me There's no application in my life, but it does, doesn't it? Will you receive the one who has died for your sins? The Bible declares that each one of us is guilty. We're not just kind of lost, family. The wages of that sin is death. That is why Christ had to die. His death for our death. His resurrection and life for our resurrection and life. That is why the Bible declares that all who believe in Christ will be saved. Because you are trusting in his death for yours, his burial for yours, his resurrection for yours. You lay down your life, he gives you his the exchange rate is staggering. We lay down our golden calf and embrace of the Lamb of God. I want to encourage you today, if you've not given Jesus your life, don't let this moment pass. And if you have given Jesus your life, continue to share him with the world and just understand that rebellion, rejection, and rage is going to be more and more common. Share him anyway, because there are people who have never heard, there are people who have never believed, and there are people who are desperate to hear and to believe. And when you share the gospel, they will receive and they will be saved. Continue to preach his name anyway, regardless of how the culture responds. Culture has never been a big fan of Jesus, no matter what culture you're in. Secondly, know the word. Stephen's sermon was was just biblical. He preached the word. In the middle of his sermon, he quotes by heart from the book of Amos. I know that one by heart, don't you? Whole book. I had to look it up. I'm like, that's really from Amos? I was like, it is? He was able without notes to navigate his way through the old testament defending the gospel and as i was thinking about that i was like what would have happened this is a hypothetical and yes you can pick it apart blah 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 but it's hypothetical get over it so what if the average north american church attender was put on trial how do you think that trial would have gone how do you think that sermon would have would have read of just the average attender at a local church. I've gone ahead and put together a narrative. You all ready? A little discourse? This will be fun. Let's say you. There's a God, and he has a son, and there was this guy, David, who, who, uh, who beat up a giant with a, a slingshot, and they walked around a city, and the walls fell down, and... Uh, jesus died on christmas i know that doesn't sound right no it, no 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 he was born because there was this this hotel and there were no vacancies but these three wise guys and there was a donkey there and um something happened we go to church on easter because he is um he is rad he is really cool he's risen And that's right after Friday because it's good. And John 3.16. And I go to church. I I mean, I say that mockingly. You know I'm making fun, right? I mean, it's... But how far away from the truth is that? I'm going to make a statement, and it was as much grace as I can muster. We as a culture, and I'm talking about church culture... We are the most biblically illiterate church culture, and I would argue this, than since prior to the printing press. The Gutenberg printing press. Like Protestant Reformation printing press. Like the 1500s. When they literally didn't have a Bible. We have more versions of the Bible in our language than any other language on earth. We have it in print, we have it in audio, and we have it in digital formats. We literally have formats for our formats. We, have, we, have, we can choose our reader. Would you like a Charlton Heston reader? Or would you like a more contemporary hipster reader? You can do the old King James, or you can do the, like, the New Living Translation, or the Message, or whatever. We have it in so many different flavors, yet we're not eating it. And I'm, I'm wondering why. This is not a guilt and shame message. This is just, I don't get that. I don't understand why we're not reading the Bible. Maybe it doesn't seem relevant. Um, what's like a, com- like a really popular TV show that we binge watch? Game of Thrones, Sinners. What else? (laughs) The Walking Dead. This is us. What else? Come on, tell me what you're watching. I want (laughs) to (laughs) know. Friday Night Lights. Hey, you know what? I watch all that and more. I know. Aren't you just so judging me in your hearts right now? I thought he only watched what Left Behind. <laughs> he only watches Christian movies, right? Just keep thinking that. All of that seems relevant to us. We are on the edge of our seat to see the next Game of Thrones. Can you believe it? Oh my God! I don't know. Comes to the scripture, we're like, how eh. relevant that is. Something's wrong there. Okay? I'm not telling us to not watch TV. I'm just saying there's something wrong there as far as priorities. Because when we are called to stand for the faith and you will, and it's not always going to be these extreme moments where you have to stand before the high Jewish council and all that. There are these little moments. They're around the water cooler when that person goes, I can't believe people actually believe God created the heavens and the earth. And you're sitting there and you're like, oh, crud, I should know something about that. Uh, they'll probably bring up dinosaurs, so I'm not going to say anything. <laughs> Those moments when we're called to take a stand, when people say, oh, oh, they, this whole Jesus thing, it's just a crutch, and you're sitting there like, gosh, I should be able to say something about that. I wonder if John 3.16 will be all the information they need. Good to see you, Paul. We're called on all the time. Be prepared. It's the Boy Scout oath, right, Joe? All right. Finally, seeing Jesus in our sufferings, you you may find this uh, to be helpful too. In the final moments of Stephen's life, he didn't see his accusers. He didn't see his certain death. He was able to see beyond them. I think sometimes, or I think right now, some of us right now are seeing the disasters in our life. And and, and I'm just going to encourage us, please, let's start start looking above it. And let's start seeing Jesus in it. Let's start seeing Jesus above it and over it all. And then no matter what type of suffering we're going through or no matter what kind of suffering we'll experience in this life, Jesus at the right hand of the Father is saying, I'm going to see you in just a moment. Every every aspect of suffering we go through is just a reminder, we're going to be there soon. Seeing Jesus in our sufferings. Lord, we, um, we come before you. We thank you for your word this morning and uh, the study of it, the, the, the freedom that we have to come to a place and worship you and to sing and to study your word and to grow and to be challenged and encouraged and a place where we can give our life. If you're here and you've not received Jesus as your Savior, listen up. Jesus died for you. He was buried. He's risen. The Bible declares that all who believe in him, all who trust in him, believing that he died for your sins, believing that he was buried and he's risen, and he's alive right now. We just saw him right here in the text. He's at the right hand of the Father. If you want to receive Jesus as your Savior for the first time in your life, just tell him, Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe that you died for my sins. I ask you for forgiveness. I believe you were buried, and I believe you've risen, just like Pastor Chris has said, just like your Bible states. Please save my life. You may be sitting here thinking your life is unsavable. I want to argue against that because there's no life that is beyond saving. Not yours, not anyone's. The only life that God can't save is the life that refuses to receive salvation. Receive him today. And if that is your heart's prayer, the Bible declares you've just passed from death to life. You are now eternally a son or daughter of God. Nothing can take you from his hand. Welcome to the family. Well, Lord, give us courage today to be bold witnesses. Give us hunger today to study your word. And give us faith today to see above and beyond the suffering, to look and lock eyes with you. Remind us of the hope that we have that when we breathe our last and we lay down to sleep, it'll just be a nap as we awake in eternity with you. That is a true and everlasting hope for the soul. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's stand together. Y'all did wonderful. Stretch out to the right, to the left. I hope you all are staying. We have our church-wide meeting. It starts at 12.30. And so get yourself a fresh cup of coffee and come on back. We'll have a meeting for about an hour. It's the direction of where we're headed as a church. We're launching our 2017-2018 building campaign. It's not quite what you might be thinking. We're not building buildings. We're setting out to build you. So go into the world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Help the suffering. Share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all To meet again same time, same place next week. And do not forget you are loved. Now go tell the world. Go proclaim to the world. Go buy a t-shirt that tells the world that you are loved. Loved. Have a wonderful week in Jesus. I hope you stay.